Hello and welcome to our monthly podcast series, In Conversation With. Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the benefits of waterless beauty. And first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panellists. In the studio with me today, we have Emma Grace Bailey, editor at WGSN, and Joanna Bell, Brand Insight and Contact Director at Free the Birds. And on the phone, we have Kaylee Brutt, founder and CEO of Owa Hair Care, and Linda Tresca, CEO at Pinch Colour. Hello all, thanks for joining us today. Hello. 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 Hi. <laughs> so I guess we'll start off with, with defining what we're talking about. First of all, for the interests of our guests who are listening to us today about what waterless beauty is um, and how the trend has arisen. Emma, do you want to start us off having recently written a whole report on it? Yes, of course. So waterless beauty, from what I've researched, comes from two sides. It either uses less water or no water in the actual formulation and the product, or it requires no water to use the product at the end. And then in terms of where it's come from, I'd say... I'd love to say from a personal point of view that it's come from a much bigger awareness around water scarcity on a global level, but I don't really think that's why it's become such a big trend in recent months. I think it's to do with, A, the convenience. So I think consumers are really looking for more and more products that they can use on the go, wherever they are, when they're traveling, when they're in the gym. And waterless are just easy to do that. You don't need to have a shower or a tap nearby. You can just do it whilst you're like on the tube or on the, on the plane. I also think there's a growing awareness around water as a filler ingredient and potentially consumers are kind of now demanding that the ingredients are much more authentic and that they're not, what their money, they're spending the money on is actually doing them some sort of benefit. Whereas water can have, offer some benefits, but, you know, not as many as kind of essential oils and all that sort of stuff. And also, of course, the, the cleanliness of solid products or waterless products, because water will definitely, or needs preservatives to be used within a beauty product and therefore if you don't have preservatives uh, it's just a cleaner product for the skin and healthier. And Linda as the owner of a a waterless brand do you want to add anything to that? I agree 100% with Emma actually waterless beauty means water-free formulas or to to keep the water usage at a minimum level. It has started as a trend, the whole waterless concept, back in, I would say, 2014 in Korea. But it has definitely taken on a a very lifestyle approach because people are understanding more and more that water is a very important and essential ingredient that shouldn't be used for not just not only cosmetics, but it just shouldn't be used uh, if it's not necessary. And my point of view when creating the brand, I just didn't see this ingredient as a necessary ingredient to be wasted on cosmetics, but rather preserved for drinking purposes. And that was the whole concept behind Pinch of Color. And Kaylee, do you want to add to that? I agree as well. I think uh, another impact of water that hasn't really been talked about, that is something we're trying to raise awareness about at AWA, actually how taking water out or never putting water into products actually impacts the entire product life cycle. So when you're talking about distribution, um, you're not packaging and shipping water, you're using less energy throughout the entire supply chain. It's not just about what's inside the bottle, but the entire product development process, how it's delivered to the consumer, 
and that whole efficiency around waterless beauty. And it's interesting because from the research that I did, actually this movement originally came about because K-beauty consumers were demanding more concentrated formulas and they wanted a sort of less diluted product. It wasn't actually an eco-movement, but is it fair to say that it is now, Joanna? I was actually going to, this kind of ties into what people have just said, but I kind of disagree with the concept of waterless in the sense of it really should be about water optimization because any process, any time we um, produce and consume a beauty product necessarily uses water throughout the production process, whether it's in the packaging or the distillation of ingredients. So when we actually think about it in the round, the sustainability aspect comes if you optimise and minimise water throughout that entire supply chain. So yes, it's becoming something that's understandable in the context of wider sustainability. But as you've said, it's not something that people are necessarily aware about embedded within product usage generally. But I think as people have it explained to them, and I can think of um, products out of Germany, such as Stop the Water While Using Me, it suddenly starts to become something people are aware of as an entirety. So water optimization. And do you think awareness has actually reached a level all over the world about waterless to this point? Because, for example, plastic is obviously getting huge, huge attention right now, but we haven't heard an awful lot. While there are brands bringing out, including, you know, P&G's waterless and South Africa products, that it seems like the consumers aren't really thinking about this, particularly in the West, in drought regions such as South Africa, obviously. Yeah, the concept of water scarcity, I mean, we, we know that last year was a, you know, a sea change. You're like, once you've had your eyes open to plastic pollution, um, physically seeing it on beaches or choking up animals, you, you can never go back. I don't think that many environmental issues that are this in this holistic sustainable sense have, have kind of impacted people's minds. It's very hard to show the tangible impacts of water scarcity in countries where we, <laughs> in the UK recently, we've had an abundance of water. So it's really, we need as as an industry, as brand designers, as trend spotters, as brands need to start to think about really interesting ways to show what that might mean, to visualise it perhaps, to, I know that Afik is very good at saying, you know, for every bar we have saved these three bottles. We've saved three plastic bottles and this much water. And I think it becomes something, if it's in a wider sustainability message about we are doing less damage to the planet and this is how, it suddenly becomes easier for consumers in countries where water isn't an issue to kind of get that tangible I've saved five litres of water or I've saved five bottles and I think that's something that could be an approach. Kaylee, how are you spreading that kind of message? Absolutely. So we're actually looking at things like we have a blog portion on our website to help educate consumers and make it more interesting. Something that we're doing in the background is we're actually doing a life cycle assessment on our products so that we can quantify the impact we have. And what we'd like to do is have a counter on our website about how much you've reduced your CO2 footprint, how much water you save, and how much energy you save per bottle of AWA and have a counter and show that, you know, it's a movement together that consumers can join us in. So we can quantify that, we can show impact, and I think that that's a really interesting way for consumers, one, to be interested and see that they're making a change just by the way that they're washing their hair in the morning. 
And Linda, how about you? How are you pushing the message of waterless? We are too also um, introduced this year actually a blog on our page where we kind of target posts that are relating to water and the water usage and ways of reducing water. Uh, to Emma's point earlier, though, it, it is definitely a difficult subject to talk about in countries that water it exists and in countries that people have never seen any issues with scarcity of water. But I think the messaging for us stays consistent through the website, through our packaging, through our blog, uh, through our social media platform. It's it's definitely a lot of work, and I think people are starting to get on board. It's not going to be easy because it has to be a movement where all of us kind of step in together and talk about the importance of water. But it will get there. You know, it started as, as a trend. And it, it is definitely entering in a lifestyle and, and um, life-changing subject when I speak to people on the store level or, or every time I travel. When I was looking at Waterless Beauty products out there, it's, there seemed to be a split between those who were going for the eco-angle and those who were saying, this is concentrated and therefore a, a better product and also good right. for travelling and frequent flying. Is, is there a, a bit of a sort of split between those? Because frequent flying is hardly an eco message, is it? Emma, what do you think about that? That's a very good point, actually. Um, I would actually say on the waterless front, yes, the sustainability message is really key, particularly moving forward and the water scarcity issues. We're all going to kind of suffer over the next few years or decades. But I think brands genuinely are quite scared of tackling the sustainability issue, particularly with every product that they put out there. And so waterless can be a way to tackle it quite quietly behind the scenes, but pushing a different benefit towards the consumer. And that's why I think maybe the travel side has kind of popped up so much when it comes to solid formulas, because that's a very tangible benefit that we can all appreciate and kind of all benefit from very quickly. Whereas, as you say, in the UK, for example, or the States, you can just turn on the tap and there's water for everyone. And it's not something that we're ever going to really understand that we need to reduce our usage of. And as much as the beauty product way of kind of, yes, this is waterless. Yes, like you're doing your part for the planet. I just don't think consumers will get that as much as you're not, you know, for example, in South Africa last year. Um, so that's why I think there's two sides of it that have come through. Despite the fact that traveling is obviously not an eco-friendly option, I think it's a way for brands to tap into it without having to go down that kind of scarier sustainability route. Sustainability, and we've, you know, it comes up time and time again. It's something that the industry really, you know, has to tackle because beauty products typically are optional. They, they, you know, they beautify us. We, we love to look beautiful. Do we need to look beautiful in a in a resource sustained world? Do we need to to use the stuff? The answer is probably no. So the sustainability issue to me is that everything when we view it in a kind of holistic way and look at perhaps the ingredients, quite often things that are water optimal or water reduced also have other benefits to the communities they're produced in. They have benefits in terms of packaging minimization and therefore where consumers do care about and they can see the visual impacts and the physical impacts of packaging. When we say, for example, with ingredients, 
quite a lot of people know that almond oil and almond products are, um, you know, highly um, water intensive, whereas things like vetiver um, actively help to increase um, water scarcity. They preserve and purify water and, and help soil moisture. And so wild harvested crops as well, which are just kind of incidentally grown in indigenous countries, have the advantage of improving local economies at the same time as not impacting the environment in the places where they're made. So there's a kind of, when you in that holistic way, you start to be able to articulate waterless, water optimized in a way that has other benefits that make consumers feel great things they like. Ah, I am helping contribute towards um, a local cooperative who hand forage while vetiver, which helps the environment, you know, is a kind of, uh, it's a virtuous circle in that holistic way. And it, be- and it provides other narratives for brands to use as well that do make consumers feel good, that make them feel that they're doing something positive when they buy their beauty products. So I think it is, you can see how they kind of all inter interrelate together. And I don't think there are any easy answers. We It's very easy to demonise palm oil and it's very easy to demonise certain ingredients. But when we think of it in the round, sometimes they can be very water efficient. So I think it is really, you know, really looking at every aspect of sustainability not just one in isolation. That's when the big brand stories start to emerge because they are attractive on every aspect, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just about to launch into uh, festival season uh, <laughs> everywhere. And uh, and obviously, Waterless Beauty is a very handy tool for that sort of thing. What, what products are we talking about? Traditionally, it was just dry shampoo and now it's kind of exploded and expanded. Linda, do you want to talk to us about waterless makeup a little bit? How do you formulate without water? It's definitely a daily challenge of formulating without water for us. There are products that are very easy to formulate without water. Lipsticks is one of them, or anything solid to the point that we made earlier is definitely easier to formulate. But when it comes to fluid formulations like liquid foundations or mascaras or anything that involves fluidity in in a texture, it definitely makes it challenging because most of the products that you see on the market that are fluid contain about 50 to 80% water in their content. We have been able to challenge the current technologies that we are working with but by replacing water with um, other ingredients, usually extracts or either or synthetic man-made products that give the fluidity and the light texture that the consumer asks for without compromising, obviously, the quality of the product as well. So um, the, the, the positive aspect of on the absence of water is that it helps us with the high pigmentation and the high concentration of the ingredients. Uh, the negative part is that we just haven't gotten there on the technology side to, to work and develop all the products and all the categories out there that exist on the market without the use of water. But I'm hopeful we're going to get there eventually. But it's been challenging for us, especially formulating liquid foundations or mascaras. And Kaylee, do you want to add to that from the hair care front? What's nice about hair care, something like a shampoo, is that it is used with water. So our concept for our shampoo and the conditioner that's currently in development was, okay, there's already water in your shower. So for the consumer, it's natural that there aren't really any extra steps. Formulation challenges around that were huge, though. Traditionally, 
shampoo and conditioner are mostly water. And we needed to be able to get that same lather, have the conditioning effect, have the slip, have the rinseability, all while having enough friction and enough sheer stress to be able to activate our formula um, and still have it work really, really well. So the whole development process, we looked at things like powdered face washes, which are traditionally exfoliating. So our formula is much, much different than that. We looked at solid shampoo bars like what Ethique offers, as mentioned previously. Um, and we also looked at a traditional liquid shampoo. Functionally, what does a shampoo need to do? What is the consumer expecting? And what's most important to the consumer? And then also, can we have these same features? Like, can we have a volumizing shampoo? Can we have a hydrating shampoo? Can we have an anti-dandruff shampoo? So all of these were very instrumental in creating our final formulation for our first shampoo. Uh, I think what's going to be more interesting as we start to work on styling products is how the consumer response because you will have to add water to something that traditionally water wasn't in before. So I think we're going to see a really big learning around that and seeing, you know, okay, maybe it is they're buying this product for the the travel friendly aspect, but is it going to be an inconvenience for them to add a little bit of water into a product similar to like a powdered face mask or, you know, a clay based mask. So I think we're going to see more challenges as, as we move into uh, products that aren't traditionally used with water for consumers. So it'll be interesting to see that response. Sure. And we have uh, seen a sort of stark trickle effect of, of we've seen dry masks from Charlotte Tilbury, powdered cleansers, um, things like that emerging too. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about more brands and products, Joanne? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, when we, you know, that concept, one of the things that's really notable with waterless or water optimal beauty is where multifunctionality is actually coming to the fore. As you said, you know, things that traditionally would have been rinse off perhaps are leave on. So I'm thinking of the Charlotte Tilbury uh, multi-miracle glow. It's a mask, it's a cleanser, it's, it can be left on overnight, it can be tissued off. So naturally, um, Lixir as well, um, the universal emulsion, so that's multifunctional, reduces usage, it doesn't need rinsing. And similarly, the Sam McKnight uh, dry shampoo is also a styling product as well an active styling product not incidentally styling product as as well and, and reduces oil so I, th- I think with that kind of approach I think consumers are, are naturally starting to see and use beauty products in a far more flexible way they're not necessarily expecting to have to rinse they're not necessarily expecting to have to use a wipe they're kind of I think the the introduction of Obviously, of new beauty regimes from um, different countries, um, like Korea, for example, with the Cushion Foundations, people are kind of much more um, open to trying new sensorial uh, and applicator approaches to their beauty products. And I think that opens up a really great opportunity for waterless beauty because people are naturally more experimental. So I, I think that's a really good thing. And the other side of that, I think, is the issue around like the there are other sustainability issues around wipes, but the sense that you can use them in multiple ways. And as long as they're biodegra- truly biodegradable, um, they, they particularly with the bamboo side of things and the bamboo um, masks as well. I think there's um, My Trans My Couture Bamboo. You can have other more sustainable options for uh, waterless formats as well. So I think generally there's an openness and I think that people are much more interested in trying new formats. 
Emma, do you want to add? Actually, on the multifunctional front, I came across a really interesting product the other day. I think it's been around a while, but it's from Headboy Industries in South Africa, and it's called Dry Bath Gel. I don't know if anyone's heard of it, but it's basically a gel for the body to wash and clean the body and um, deodorizing and you don't have to wipe it off with any water you can slough off like any dirt that comes to the surface when you rub it into your skin but it also acts as a moisturizer and a deodorant and there's no water involved in the usage whatsoever so I thought that was a really innovative way and something we haven't seen we've seen it with hair we've seen it with skincare but for an entire body wash I think that's quite an interesting move forward in the kind of waterless area. And then also Nanette uh, de Gaspé's dry textile masks are a really interesting area to look into as well. Um, that's basically a completely dry sheet mask that's infused with the formula and the ingredients. And just by actively rubbing it on your skin and the combination of the heat and the pH of your skin, that, that formula is activated and deeply penetrates your skin. And again, there's no moisture, there's no... With the sheet masks we typically use, they're very, very sticky as well and very wet. And that, for a consumer, I think, can be quite difficult to use or quite inconvenient to use. I know I don't personally like them, um, just for the, the feeling of them on my skin. But the dry ones, you know, they, you can just do them anywhere without having to go then to the sink and wash it all off. So I think those two are the ones that I'm most intrigued by. I think there is, a, there is that tension there, even as the example I gave with wipes. There is, I think, one of the challenges around this approach is those wider sustainability implications. Mm. We know that Holland and Barrett recently have, have banned all forms of wipes, even though some of their own brands, like Beauty Kitchen, have biodegradable, full biodegradable wipes. So there's that tension, isn't there? I'm being waterless, but at the same time, I have this paper or this infused, you know, piece of packaging or uh, leftover, what do I do with it? So I think it's a really interesting issue. And so the brands that uh, that don't have that excess packaging, and I know our is thinking about that as well, uh, which I read about, it, it's that wider issue that I think people can really understand. And I think any brand that's looking to go down, not just a form, the convenience format mm -hmm. and start making sustainability waterless claims really has to think about marrying them up with the other stuff because it just looks bad. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point. I think that consumers are looking for sustainability in the round and we don't want, I mean, personally, I avoid anything now that's single use or disposable because ultimately... It's not in our interests because we don't have a global waste disposal system. So biodegradable, for example, for me, who I live on a London street where all of my black bin waste is incinerated. So biodegradable is completely useless because it's still sending rubbish to an incinerator. So only if it's compostable or recyclable is it actually circular zero waste for me. So when I was looking at waterless also, I was also interested in looking at the packaging from a personal point of view because you'd want to know that you're not then creating another problem. And, and I think that's the difficulty for consumers nowadays is, is if you tick a box, you might accidentally be creating something worse. For example, cotton totes over plastic bags, you know, has been proven by a Denmark study to be worse for the environment, which is, you know, counterintuitive with all of the headlines that plastic it, is getting at the moment. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about it before, but plastic can be, can be a more environmentally sustainable solution for certain products in certain ways. There's no, there's no one solve a bullet for any of the issues that, that that's why I've mentioned more to optimal because that, that that's about you know minimizing wattage throughout the supply chain and that's true in anything is that you know is it packaging optimal you know there's always going to be waste unless you 
produce and consume nothing, <laughs> there's always going to be some form of environmental impact. And it's just considering all of it. And I think consumers naturally, it's not that they're looking to um, kind of catch out brands, but they want to ask questions. They're valuing transparency. And, you know, you need to have good answers for all of the questions, not just one, which is tricky. Yeah. Do you not think, though, that the level of confusion that even we've just discussed now, like we don't really know as consumers, and I don't think brands will know all the answers either, that it's stopping both consumers from really acting on their kind of sustainable goals and it's also stopping brands from doing anything. So I feel like brands are so terrified that they'll get one thing wrong. They make a sustainable claim, they do something that's more sustainable than they might have done before, but as soon as they announce that to the world, people are kind of like, oh, well, you might have done that part right, but you haven't done this part right. But they're doing something. And that's a lot more than they have done in the past. So I fear about, I have a fear of the more we talk about people kind of, if you do one part right and you're not doing that part right, it's going to put people off from even trying. I think there's a really fantastic, I literally got a marketing email from Bybee Beauty. I think that's how you say it, (laughs) Bybee. And they, it was fantastic. They said, we're only 97% recyclable. And this is why. So I don't think it's about perfection. It's about a journey. And it's also about brands saying, we prioritise this issue. We prioritise if it's a food business, it might be hunger. If it's female empowerment, it might be in in improving jobs. So uh, for women, so there isn't, I think it's not, it's about having the right answers and saying that this is, as a brand, this is what we prioritise, to be fair. But I do agree with you, it is hard. Linda and Kaylee, how are you tackling feedback from your consumers? Do you get do you get feedback and ask questions asked? It makes me laugh right now. I'm actually smiling in silence here. But um, you could never win when it comes to pleasing the consumer 100%. And that's kind of been my understanding over the past three years since I launched the brand. Um, But prioritizing, I think, is a very important keyword because we all have to start somewhere. And that's my response to our consumers because you talk about waterless beauty, they talk about organic beauty. You talk about waterless beauty, they talk about plastic. So everyone has their own pain points. And when I sit and I listen to everyone's pain points, it really gets very confusing trying to make your point as to where you came from as a founder when creating the brand. So I think focusing on what's priority to me as a founder of Pinch of Color has been an easy way or an easy approach to when discussing in public. Um, it is been about prioritizing. We are prioritizing and focusing on one category and becoming better and better every day because every day even I get to learn so many things that I didn't know the day before. And also what's important to us as a brand, we take it to the next level. And we are also an ethical beauty company because part of our proceeds are given to water NGOs that build sustainable solutions for communities around the world and help bring clean water and fresh water in schools and communities that don't have any access of water. So I think it's about staying focused when talking to the consumers and kind of bringing them back to understand your point and your reasoning as to why you started what you started rather than talking about all the sustainability uh, kind of world that is happening out there and it's great that it's happening but same focus has been kind of my you know my approach yeah I think um you know for us at AWA 
we launched just a couple of weeks ago and we're getting so many questions about packaging and plastic. And um, for us, it was a decision around, you know, what was the best consumer experience? Um, We needed some flexibility in our bottle. You know, there's not really many options here. Um, And we were looking at a product that, again, going back to the travel aspect, you want to throw it in your bag and you want it in the shower. You don't want it to be glass. And aluminum wasn't an option either because we needed that flexibility. So we really looked at the impact as a whole and we made sure that the plastics that we were using were recyclable and easily recyclable. And we would like to have a program in the future where we will take that plastic back or we'll offer a refillable option. So it's definitely something we're thinking about. Um, To Linda's point, you know, you can't launch and satisfy every customer's needs, but we're trying our best and we want to do what's best for the environment. So that's why we look at it as a holistic perspective. It's not just about the packaging. It's not just about the product. It's about that whole piece coming together and what happens to it, you know, after it goes down the drain, you're talking about biodegradability of the ingredients, not just about packaging. So I really do think that part of how we're addressing this is the education piece through our blog and just being able to give consumers more than a a yes, no answer, even one sentence, but really go into detail about how we made our decisions and being transparent. And I like how you said it wasn't about perfection. It's about the journey. You know, this is the very beginning of where our brand is starting. I think, you know, if I was afraid of, of what, every single consumer would say we we never would have made it to launch. So I think it's really important to be transparent and talk about what you're doing and how you're getting there and why you made the decisions that you did. And like Linda was saying, staying true to your brand and your vision and your mission, I think is just so, so, so important today as a consumer brand. I think that's the key. And I think pretty much all of us, apart from people who, you know, had a crystal ball right at the beginning are at sort of early stage of our sustainability journey and that's why the questions are arising because nobody knows there isn't a like ecoometer to assess what 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 your impact has what your purchasing decisions are causing so i think that's why questions are arising around water use around plastics etc etc because we don't know no one has the the big answer and it's it's refreshing when brands say we don't know but we're trying i think that's the, the key message isn't it rather than saying oh no we've done this I think one of the interesting things that came up, I, I gave a, a, a presentation on sustainable, responsible beauty, which is actually a nice way of thinking because it, it takes responsibility for its actions rather than just a, a passive. But one of the interesting things was was the issue of measurement, you know, and therefore, because you've measured it, you can communicate it and talk about your priorities. And some of the, you know, there are hundreds, hundreds of various certifications, measurements between the Carbon Trust, between whether you go down the the UN water footprint measurement model, there are, you know, there is, as I said, you know, knowing what your brand stands for and then choosing the measurements which make sense for you, that then you can track your journey. And I love the idea of having it on the the amount of water saved on, on the blog, for example, like together you have contributed to saving how many million swimming pools of water. I love the idea that it's, by having those measurements, you can communicate your your successes as well. But there is there you know there is no one 
footprint model. And if someone could do it, please make it open source, you know, because <laughs> that was one of the things. And I, and I thought it was interesting that L'Oreal have come up with the with Giosa, this water, high power, low water usage showerhead for its professional salons, um, which also can have a low rinse shampoo which they've they've the Giosa or the hardware company that they've done obviously the beauty product that can be infused into but in very much like Elon Musk who wants to make electric cars a reality I feel like that's something that should be shared and open source in a similar way and I don't think there's one you know no company no brand no one individual no one country can solve the problems on their own and I think a spirit of sharing some of the things that work is definitely one approach that beauty businesses could take as well to have that kind of camaraderie and, you know, we want to make a difference. Let's share some of that information. Let's talk about cost a little bit because, you know, one of the major attractions of water in beauty products is that it's cheap in terms of price, not in terms of environmental impact, obviously. It's a rising advent, and given that all of the big gardens, Unilever, L'Oreal, P&G, have pledged to reduce their water use, um, whether in production or product, is there going to be a cost impact for consumers? Are they going to have to pay more? Kaylee, is your hair care range prestige? Is it What's the price comparable? Because it's, it's not affordable for everybody, or are we just simply going to have to pay more? Yeah, so we made ours pretty affordable. I think, you know, for us as a brand and for me personally, a reason for starting this was really to have an impact. Um, And I knew the only way we could really make a change was to have it be as affordable as possible, um, but still maintain, you know, the quality of like a salon shampoo. Like you still want that very luxurious experience. So our price point is 29 US dollars. So if you're looking to buy an all natural, clean beauty product like shampoo conditioner, you go into a Credo Beauty, you're seeing the same price point. So at the buying position of the consumer, you don't have to pick whether you're spending more money on our product. And it actually is cheaper con- for consumers because it's lasting three and a half times longer than that other bottle of shampoo you would have bought. From a cost of goods perspective, it's definitely more expensive for us. I don't see this happening on a L'Oreal scale right away because I think it's it's too expensive per unit for them. Um, but for us, it was really, you know, we want to deliver a good product and we want consumers to be able to use it and it not cost them an arm and a leg. I really wanted to be able to make an impact. So for us, we really wanted to keep that price point as low as possible um, while still being able to maintain quality and obviously have a business where we could continue to create products and and offer more of this to consumers. In terms of margin then, are, are you taking the hit? Or, I mean, some someone has to pay somewhere along the line. So is, is it a, a sort of lower margin accepting that as an eco-business that that's part of your model? Or how does that work? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, you know, um, we're looking at something like, you know, we, we hear fast fashion. Now we're hearing fast cosmetics. We really want to get away from that. We want to slow down and we know we're taking a hit on the margin, but I think in the long run, we're still going to be around when other brands aren't. And Linda? 
the same for us. I mean, the price, the cost of goods for us is definitely higher than um, when formulating with water. But it's a decision that I made from the beginning when I started the company. I believed in the company. I believed in what we were doing. And yes, we are definitely getting a little bit of a um, hit on the margin end. But it's fine. I think overall, the business has a lot of potential. And with time, we are going to continue challenging the laboratories and the technology to um, improve the costs and improve the manufacturing process. Jan, what do you think? It's is this a moral or a business decision? When when the big <laughs> players are saying, I'm going to do this, they're not saying that oh, we're going to take a lower margin, are they? <laughs> I very much doubt it. Um, this is a really, you know, going very, very high end. And I'm thinking about caring here, which is in the, you know, the very luxury business. They, they've taken the approach and they're one of the most sustainable businesses in the world, regularly ranked. They've taken a business as, as a permission to operate. If we thought beauty was um, optional, luxury goods are even more optional. Um, and so they've taken that approach for towards sustainability on every aspect because they believe it's permission to operate. I think that we've talked about the price people will pay and the the question is we are already paying a price it's just that we haven't actually physically paid it out with money we're paying it out with climate change and pollution and smog and all the other things so it's a question of who pays first and when do we pay so i think that it is going to take a a, a while for this to effectively be transferred back on to margins but i think there is a role where mass, mass, mass can can actually implement at scale that can make the huge changes that can be necessary. And obviously, as I said, with Gyoza and L'Oreal and Henkel and Cal, they're all looking towards low-rinse um, shampoos that extend the need for washing. So I think it's more about, I think for them, it might be more on the consumer behaviour side about extending the, t you know, having offering claims which say actually you only need to wash your hair once a week but it has these amazing benefits in the meantime so they I feel can do the best at scale and consumer behavior and they can also use technology at scale so we've seen that in packaging because now we know that Unilever are going to be doing recyclable black packaging which wasn't possible before and now they're offering it to other people as well so I think that they are uniquely well placed to take on the mantle and I think that consumers are now swiveling. So I guess they're moving before they're made to. And I can't think that that's going to uh, be much longer than the very short to midterm within the next five years. So I think these amazing brands like Pinch of Colour and Hour and have raised the issue within consumer minds. And then the big guys are going to have to just, they're going to, it's going to be the permission to operate. So that's why they're moving ahead. And I think it's great. I mean, yeah, in terms of the future, is, is water the new luxury? Kaylee, what do you think? I don't want to call it a new luxury. I just think that we're raising awareness about the environment in general. And water is a topic right now. Um, just like you were saying, you know, plastic was talked about so much. Now water is being talked about. I think we still need to look at our impact holistically. Water is a luxury. It's just we're being made aware of it now. It's not new, but I do think it's we're moving in the right direction and water is the current topic. And Linda? Water has been a luxury for my life ever since I was born. So it's catching up now with the modern world. 
but water has been um, an issue for many millions, billions of people for a very long time on the planet. So um, I'm glad that the modern world is now catching up because with the power of money and the economic means, we can maybe do something about it. I think it's definitely a resource that we have to keep a close eye because not many people are talking about, just as we discussed before. And it is a resource that it could potentially go completely extinct. And that's based on the discussions I've had with uh, scientists and, and people that work in the green chemistry world. And I know it sounds kind of ordinary just hearing this. It was a shock for me the first time I heard it. But it is a resource that we have to really, really pay attention to. Emma, what do you think the future of waterless beauty is? Can you see it growing and growing everywhere? Are we going to see a boom first in water-scarce countries, followed by less water-poor countries? I think you'll see a different type of product come through depending on what country you're in. So I think I think in the West, and where we're really lucky never to have seen water as a luxury, um, I think it's the solid formats that are really going to come forward. And again, it, it's linked back to convenience and, and travel, unfortunately. And then on the flip side, in the countries and the regions where water is and has always been really scarce, I think it's about coming up with those really innovative formulas and applications that can be used without any water. And so people no longer have to rely on water for effectively, as you said earlier, things that aren't a necessity. You know, washing our hair and, and being beautiful, they're not a necessity, but they do make us everyone globally feel better and happier about themselves. And so it's a way of making sure those people could continue to use those products that you know, give them a sense of well-being and happiness, but without having to put extra stress on something that's already really scarce in their life and causes them stress in other areas. Joanne, anything to add? The only other thing I would add is I, I, I absolutely just, I can't remember that. I think that there's one thing that was around being very smart. I see waterless, but beauty generally and sustainability looking to behave smarter and to borrow innovation from other um, category. So like, for example, laundry and household care has been hugely innovative in going water optimal, water free, water less pellets, you know, all of the different issues. But also, I think businesses looking towards novel approaches. So businesses that upcycle and use other waste streams, such as, you know, food. And we know that M&S in their pure range use grapes, the leftover grapes. That means that no one is buying grapes, to, uh, to growing grapes to make Revasterol to go into beauty products. It's already been used. So I think it's brands can, I think the it, it's going to marry onto the wider sustainability um, agenda. But I think that where businesses can, you know, do and use the right ingredients, the minimal packaging, I think it, that's another option that brands can really take hold of and also to answer those questions that, that consumers are answering are asking and and i think that's a huge possibility as well and it's a great news story all around thank you everybody i'd like to thank everyone for taking part today thank you kaylee thank you linda thank you emma and thank you joanna and thank, thank you to you, our audience you. for listening until next time